This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. The collection and use of data, what some call big data, troublesome, but many see harnessing big data for positive social change. We'll explore this on today's show with our guests, Dr. Dwight Mullen and Mr. Patrick Conant. Marcus and I will be back in just a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and uh, once again, glad to have you all here with us in the audience. And again, I'm so happy and pleased and privileged to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going, brother? Good to be here. Looking forward to today's conversation. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, there's a lot of conversation going on about big data. I hear this all the time, and in some of the conversations that I'm in, it starts to scare me. (laughs) Knowing how people are collecting data, we've heard about the issues with Facebook and other, other big entities like that and how they're using data. It's all over conversations about even the last presidential election and how data was used. Um, And so Marcus, as a humanist, sometimes this stuff kind of, uh, uh, you know, makes me a little bit nervous when I hear how people are using data to, and it's almost deterministic in Mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what you're thinking. You and I have not had a chance to really talk about uh, some of these conversations, but I'm sure it's on your mind as well. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big data scholar, but I recently recently came across a book uh, that made a statement about big data that I found interesting. And the book is entitled Big Data, A Revolution That Will Transform How We Live, (laughs) Work, and Think. And the (laughs) authors are Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Kenneth Kukier. (laughs) And in in this text, they make the claim that the era of big data challenges the way we live and interact with the world. Most strikingly, society will need to shed some of its obsession for causality in exchange for simple correlations, not knowing why, but only what. This overturns centuries of established practices and challenges our most basic understanding of how to make decisions and comprehend mm. reality. Mm, so right. we're talking about um, a growing phenomenon that has profound, profound implications, even for how we make sense of ourselves right. in the world. Yeah, Marcus, yeah. I wonder, it makes me wonder, what is this? what are the implications for the collection and use of data there on our go. democracy itself? Mm-hmm. What are the implications? Have you, you know, what are yeah. you thinking about? Yeah, and, and to me, you know, the biggest implication perhaps is the question of access. Right. So there's all this data out there. Right. Um, that has to be crunched, so to speak, processed. Mm-hmm. But who will have access to it once it's been who processed? Controls it? And, how, yeah. and how will it then be deployed? Right. I, there was a quote that I saw that um, from uh, Carly F- uh, Fiorina, uh, who ran for the Republican nomination in the I last r- mm-hmm. round. I think she was also the CEO of HP, of Hewlett-Packard. And she made, had this quote. She said, the goal is to turn data into information and information into insight. And, you know, that really helped me it made me think as a historian about you know knowledge is power mm-hmm. right but you've raised this issue about who controls the data um and who is collecting it you know access and mm-hmm. the issue of access mm-hmm. especially in in the terms of our democracy yeah and also i think you know on a, on a perhaps a deeper philosophical level this whole big data discourse raises, raises questions about what is knowledge i mean right. is knowledge nothing more than data <laughs> Or is knowledge something more than data? Right. And so I think, you know, this is an opportunity to, to address that, that issue it as is. well. It is. And, you know, we talk about the, our democracy. I'm particularly concerned about data, what it means mm. for historically marginalized communities. Mm. Right. Mm. So 
I think that that's a, a part of the conversation that we're going to have, I'm sure, today as we talk to Dr. Dwight Mullen, who we're so honored to have back here in the studio with us, and with Mr. Patrick, Patrick Conant. And Marcus and I are going to come right back in just a few minutes to start that conversation. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvest Show. This is Darren Waters. So glad to have you all here. And so glad to be here in the studio here in Asheville, North Carolina, coming from Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus, again, we get the privilege of having Dr. Dwight Mullen here in the studio with us. And I know that with our listeners, we, we don't have to introduce him. Dwight <laughs> Dwight is one of these people in the city. Everybody knows Dr. Yeah. Mullen here in Asheville. Everybody knows him. The interesting thing about getting um, Dr. Mullen back in here again today is that oh, he's retired, recently mm. retired. But I don't think he so very heard. much has right. He's very much retired. He was one of our colleagues at the university. um, And I tell you, the place is not the same without them there. But we were happy that uh, during last year when they did retire, he and his wife, Dr. uh, Dolly Mullen, and uh, two of uh, their other colleagues who came at the same time, uh, Dr. Deborah James and uh, Dr. Charles James, they all retired together. These were some important professors at UNC Asheville. And we were happy to, to uh, celebrate them when they left. You know, they got a building named after him. And I to- jokingly told Dwight that now that his name is on the building, he's responsible for its upkeep. But Dwight, it's good to have you here. And Patrick, it's good to have you here. Yeah, Dwight, welcome, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I got to ask you, how, how does it feel to be retired? It's, it's you know, I, I, I'm just listening to you all talk. And it reminds me as a political scientist the kinds of questions we ask and you know and I'm, I, I'm not asking them anymore I'm not in the classroom just exploring them mm-hmm. because that was a dilemma as a political scientist what do I do with data and ultimately mm-hmm. our prediction of behavior is what you do with data mm-hmm. and in the prediction of behavior you control behavior mm-hmm. well that mm-hmm. doesn't fit a democracy no mm-hmm. no, no, no. <laughs> not it at all fit a democracy. <laughs> and Dwight you know just you saying that again I come back to my my background as a humanist, as a historian, you know, it, I, you know, people still have the ability to make decisions mm-hmm. on their own, you know, but having access to information is important. And I talk to so many friends who are more in the, the sciences, you know, science, technology, engineering, mm-hmm. mathematics, and people who have been involved uh, in their careers with the development of technology. I've got this ongoing debate with one particular friend who said that um, when I argued that, look, human beings still have the power to make decisions about, you know, what technology is developed and what is not. He he said, I don't agree with that. Technology is going to be developed. But that scares me. Um, but that's that's yeah. exactly what Stephen Hawkins is one of his mm. big dilemmas. Um, and he said that really the only way to actually deal with big data, the only way to un- understand it is with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and with AI. Who knows what kind of decisions mm, right. come through that? You can't keep up with that. This could turn turn into a whole other show. No. A whole different show. <laughs> I've got, AI, I've got, right? Yeah, I've got a whole a whole <laughs> set of issues with that. Oh, as well. yeah. oh yeah. And I'm, I'm reminded of a book. I think his name is Nick Bostrom, but he's a, a scholar who's written on this. And there's a, a book he wrote called Super Intelligence, which is really really frightening. But that's a sidebar. Um, so so Dr. Mullen, you had a you had a, a 
the career at UNC Asheville that spanned multiple, multiple decades. Um, just thinking about the, the arc of your career there, um, what were highlights for you? And, and what and what would you also identify as possibly as lows? You know, it's funny. I was I was. I do a lot of reflecting now um, because mm. I wonder where I'm going because that question still remains. You know, what do you do? And I guess the high points, there were two major high points um, outside of the classroom. There's a number of courses were always interesting for me to teach uh, political science fiction, black political thought. But really, the, 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 there were two. One was the African-American colloquium. It was a first-year experience program, and it was designed for black students, uh, Caribbean, Afro-Europeans, Africans, uh, African-Americans, to orient themselves to university and be successful. And we ran that program for 13 years, Mm -hmm. and I still hear from those students. And it's remarkable how successful they've been in their their careers Mm -hmm. and in their personal lives. But the second, I think, major, Mm -hmm. major accomplishment was uh, the state of Black Asheville mm-hmm. uh, undergraduate research project that was designed to look at uh, the administrative end of Jim Crow segregation. In other words, did public policy actually change in its outcomes because the laws were changed to make people equal? Mm-hmm. And in looking at Asheville City and then expanding it to Buncombe County and some preliminary investigations into other major areas, urban areas in uh, North Carolina, um, I've yet to see a place where it has. Mm-hmm. I've yet to see a place where there weren't major discre- uh, d- uh, differences in the outcomes of any public policy you choose by race, and, and really by gender, but by race particularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and class you know, does not matter. Yeah, and Marcus, mm-hmm. hear, hearing uh, Dwight mention that, you know where my mind is going again to James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. And you know, what Baldwin said about the system, you know, he said at one point, I think this was 1965, in that debate in Oxford. Uh, England, he he debated um, who was it? Uh, William F. Buckley. That's Jr. William mm-hmm. F. Buckley, and he made the statement that the system, the system itself. He talked about systems of reality, these systems of reality that we lived in, that we live in, that we're not always aware of. And then, secondly, he made the point that the system itself never really gives unless it's figured out how in giving is still going to remain in place, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. the group that was on top will remain on top. And, and Dwight, I mean, essentially, that's what, what we've yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah and it, it defies your understanding of what a democracy is and what the mm-hmm. civil rights movement accomplished. And it defies where you think um, of the present actually is. Mm-hmm. You tend to fault individuals. You tend not to look at the institutions producing those policies. All right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'm going to think, Dwight, you were talking about highs and lows at, at, uh, at uh, UNC Asheville. And um, and talking about the state of black Asheville, and we want to come back to that because it's the heart of the conversation that we're talking about here and what is being done with that project and the work with Code for America and Code for Asheville. But I'm going to assume um, with Patrick being here that Patrick was one of the highs. Because <laughs> Patrick, Dr. Mullen was uh, your professor, right? So yes. you, you took classes. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit of what was it like being in the classroom with Dr. Mullen? And you you have worked with him on the state of black Asheville project. Yeah, you tell us a little bit. So I came to UNC Asheville as a transfer student in 2007, uh, and I first took a class with Dr. Mullen uh, in 2008. Actually, during uh, the presidential election, during the economic downturn, there was a lot going on at that time. So it was a really interesting time to be in the classroom with Dr. Mullen, Mm -hmm. and. 
uh, really, I was a computer science student, and that was when I first learned about the state of Black Asheville. And it was the first time I really started to think of data in the local context and how it could be used to analyze a community in such an important way, but also to move towards policy change, uh, basically using the data to provide a foundation to talk about where we are now and where we want to be. Uh, and that really had an impact on me. That's really the whole reason I've gotten involved with Code for Asheville and civic technology and using data to assist the efforts of community groups for mm -hmm. advocacy right. all started in that classroom, you know, years before I actually started doing the work. Yeah, okay. yeah and, and this is important. And I, 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 I'm also wanting to hear a little bit more. And I think I think you both have begun to address this, but um, I think it's important for our listeners to sort of hear more about this. Um, why, why, according to both of you, why is it important to continue the work of, of the state of Black Asheville and, and who... Patrick obviously is one, but uh, who are other partners um, in this ongoing work? You know, right now, the, the importance of it is that, and in this, I'm not faulting our policymakers. I'm just not. I'm not pointing a finger personally at anyone. But for, for in many ways, policies that are made in housing and in education, locally in healthcare and healthcare and regarding criminal justice with the police, with the courts, with the prisons, uh, even our economic development, many, many times they are not database policies. Mm -hmm. They're, 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 they're politically, ideologically driven policies, but the idea of what those policies are having in terms of their outcomes by race and by gender, it's just not on the table. Mm -hmm. do, do, so, Dwight, are you finding that people – so once the data is put in front of people, yeah. are they responding differently? Yeah, yeah. They almost universally respond with denial and anger. Mm. Really? Yes, almost universally. I mean, when we first started this, my students were – in education, particularly, were uh, and and in other areas, were threatened with arrest. Uh, folk did. Folk thought that they we were defaming them. They thought we were threatening their jobs, and that's not at all. We were just saying the outcomes of your end of course exam results are these. <laughs> People uh, want to live in this world of illusion. Yeah, right? yeah. And, but and, the, the next stage, though, what I find are that people are dumbfounded about what to do about them. Mm -hmm. They act as though no one else is working on this, and maybe if we just try harder, doing the same things we've been doing will have different outcomes. All right. <laughs> Someone said something about that. You know that what the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. That's insanity. That's insanity. That's right. So here recently, in like the last maybe three four years, most of those public policy areas have realized that the disparities are not going to disappear on their own. They are not just simply being able for individuals to work harder and do better and to make institutional change. Outcomes change, and so the institutions are beginning to adopt new policies and new procedures for accountability and measurement and evaluation to talk about the outcomes and, and, and making them less racially disparate. Now, 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 Dr. Mullen, you know, in in a society that prides itself on critical well, on sort of thinking, quote unquote, objectively, scientifically. I'm a little bit surprised to hear uh, that the response to the hard data has been one of denial, anger, et cetera. 
what do you think accounts for this response when when these when these when the, when these policymakers etc are confronted with responsibly produced research with uh with 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 serious data why why this response it, it, in your estimate part of it is that it's easier when a, when there is a dominant paradigm based on white supremacy it is it is much easier to pretend to be colorblind and so why should you look at black folk and brown folk differently? Why, why care about Native Americans when really we can all do this if we just hold hands and sing? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not going to work. That, that has not worked. But that's, that's one thing. And I, I think another major reason is that it has not become unprofitable to do otherwise. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but, I, you know, I see, Dwight, as the demographics of the country change, and Patrick as well, as the demographics of the country change, we can't afford to continue to live in this illusion. Can't afford it to. seems to me. We, um, so, I, one, I know that one of the partners uh, with this has been, can you tell us a little bit about this, too, uh, Code for America, um, which is a larger uh, group that's working nationally, and you all have partnered with them, and you've developed what I've heard is Code for Asheville, which is partnering with the state of Black Asheville and kind of working together. Can you tell us, Patrick, and I know that you've been really active in this project as well. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about Code for America and now the Code for Asheville project? Yes, yeah, so Code for America is a nonprofit based out of San Francisco, uh, founded basically with the principle of using technology as a tool to improve the interactions between citizens and government, mm-hmm. uh, essentially looking at uh, what's happened with technology, particularly in the Bay Area, but across the country. We have these technical tools that have transformed our lives, uh, but government in a lot of ways still feels like it's living in the Stone Ages. Mm-hmm. So their vision is really to use that approach, that tech technology-focused approach to uh, make government work better. And it, you know, it's not always easy to convince large institutions to make that kind of change. Mm-hmm. And can, can, wh- you give, can you kind of give us an example of how the technology is getting used? Does that, does that make sense? Right. Well, you know, in some ways it's that you can do things online mm-hmm. to interact with government that you couldn't in the past. Whether that's renewing your car registration, you no longer have to wait for two hours in line at the DMV. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, that makes people's lives mm-hmm. better because they don't have to spend their time doing that. Right. Uh, but in terms of data, it's really changed a lot of things. You know, government records used to be in filing cabinets. It would take a semester of research just to write down what was in there. Mm-hmm. And now with open data, you can get all of that in a feed, and uh, someone like me can take that data and do analysis on it in a matter of minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking also uh, as we uh, – talk about the partnership between Code for Asheville, Code for America, and the state of Black Asheville uh, about the future of this work. Um, and do you see, are there, are there very sort of pronounced or troublesome challenges ahead uh, that you're anticipating and preparing to confront? Yeah, yeah. One one particular challenge is the expansion of it. It's clear Montgomery mm-hmm. County is going to be included, um, but that is that that's a, that's a positive challenge. They okay. want to improve policy coming out of several areas, including healthcare. So we've been working with Mayhack. Um, hopefully, we'll work oh. with the new mission. 
a hospital group uh, and with Buncombe County um, um, Health and Human Services. But I guess one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in is, is the economic development piece mm-hmm. in that um, the disparities in race regarding wealth and poverty are in entrepreneurship or in the behavior of our financial institutions, the banks, and, and mm-hmm. whatever, those things are so racially disparate. Those, the, mm-hmm. the gaps remind me of the, of the, of the scores of, of, in the educational sector between uh, students who are black and white in math and in science and in English. Those are 60, 70, 80 points differences between the performances of students. It's worse in the marketplace. Wow. You start thinking of factors of 10. Mm. <laughs> and so you're looking at median incomes for white families being um, $55,000, a year, while for black families, median income is closer to $25,000. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, <laughs> unemployment. You know, Staggering. It's, 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 it's record levels of, of being at the lowest points Buncombe County's ever seen it. But you're talking about for black folk, it's 35 40%. All right. And those are the people still looking. I mean, you know, when you so when I'm I'm challenged by that, but I'm also amazed at how little is being done to change that. Mm. I, I, you, as you were saying that, I was thinking about I participated in um, a forum here in Asheville, the um, Institute for Emerging Issues, which is housed at North Carolina State University. They did they're doing a three year series of forums across the state because they're trying to address some of the issues of community, you know, and how communities are really disconnected throughout the state and they want to have a conversation about this. And I was invited to uh, participate in the first forum which which was done here in Asheville and which was titled our themed Reconnect to Community. And one of the things that I started thinking about is I was pre- preparing my remarks for that is that, you know, the whole term reconnect assumes that people have been connected. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I start thinking to my I started thinking to myself, I say historically when we look at marginalized communities, they've never really been connected. At least to, not positively yes, connected. That's right. <laughs> and especially to the larger to the larger mm-hmm. community. I mean I right now I think and you can address this if you want to, both both you and Patrick if you want to. It seems to me I'm I'm it's interesting to see where students' minds are now, especially African-American students, because this past year when we did the African-Americans of Western North Carolina Conference and the students who participated in that through the Mellon uh, funding that they were given to do research projects, mm-hmm. a couple of students worked with you. Mm-hmm. They they are being bold in raising questions about what did we really get from desegregation? Mm. You know, what was lost? And mm. I'm thinking there was a sense of community that communities had then, but as far as being connected to the larger community, that's never, yeah. that's never really existed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that some people does that make sense? Dwight? It does, and 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 part of it, and part of it is that we also have not done a good job, I think, in teaching about the things that segregation that that accompanied segregation that can't be measured. For example, the humiliation, the fear, mm-hmm. the violence that was unrecorded, mm-hmm. the, 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 absolute, the levels of duplicity we had to live in, in, in order just to survive as we mm-hmm. put one face towards the majority and our community face inward towards ourselves. Right. Those things are very difficult to, to quantify. So what we tend to look at are the things that can be quantified. Mm-hmm. And when you look at what we lost because of segregation, we, we are finding ourselves looking at the state of black action. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. It, it is interesting you you talk about uh, um, you, what you were talking about duplicity and those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I it was not lost on me in these most recent conversations about how the country nationally has been responding to immigration mm-hmm. and the issue of immigration into this country and then the separation of children at the borders and I, I listen to all of these people on nightly newscast are you know political commentators talking about the irreparable damage that's being mm-hmm. done to children mm-hmm. from being separated from parents and i couldn't help but think about you know, historically, what African-Americans mm-hmm. have gone through in this country. And, and then remember, we're in the 400th uh, year observation of That's the right. beginning of slavery in yeah. this country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, if you look, Darren, if you start looking hard at social institutions and what they did in, in response in a, in a segregated environment to see just what happened to our children mm-hmm. or to our elders, absolutely, just forget health care. But just taking care of them, mm-hmm. and you find atro- you find atrocious atrocious behavior right. by our institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess a more a more practical uh, question I want to ask to both uh, you, Doctor Mellon and Patrick: um, how 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 can the how can people access this data? So so the data that's being produced um, through the work that you both are doing, how do people access it? So uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing with Code for America has been towards a new website for the State of Black Asheville project. So uh, part of that, part of what we're doing is taking all of the student research that's been done over the past 10 years, digitizing it, and making that available online. So that was one of the most important ways we thought that we could preserve all of the work that's been done to this point and also help the project transition from an academic setting into a community resource where more people can get involved to help do this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the new version of the website is currently up at stateofblackashville.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once we go through all of the focus areas that have been done previously with the project, that will replace uh, the old version of the site. So this is making me think, Dwight, because I'm thinking about challenges. Okay, people access information. Um, You have greater knowledge. You can make better political decisions as you're, you know, activists who are out there trying to get policymakers to make uh, better decisions. (laughs) My mind can't help but go to the efforts that have been put in place to suppress votes, Mm. right? Mm. So is that one of the challenges that you see? Does that make sense? I'm hoping that I'm making some connections here with this because I think for some reason I think this is connected. People Mm -hmm. have better, you know, can make better political choices. You know, people who are in power don't want that to happen. So you start adopting the other policies that make it difficult for people to vote. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're talking about connecting, connecting things. Gentrification alone is something that we're measuring without using the word gentrification by simply looking at housing and economics development and you look at education and you start seeing ramifications. Mm-hmm. You know, when the population is replaced, you lose chapter one funding, for example, for schools. So we've seen in actual city the funds go from three million to one million dollars mm-hmm. to educate poor children. Wow. So just resources itself. So, you know, this this could we could continue this conversation. And I really want to because we want to continue to follow as Mm -hmm. long as Marcus and I are here doing the show. We want to continue to follow what you're doing, Dwight, with and Patrick with with this project. And we're hoping that we can help to make knowledge of the availability of the data um, much more wider among people and that they'll get out there and they'll look and see some of these challenges that as a society 
that we face because I really believe and I know Marcus and you all all of us here sitting at the, at, in the studio today believe that you know it's important uh, for the uh, the continuation of our democracy mm-hmm. if it, the, for people to be more better informed and and for society to be more open to uh, to making some of these changes that need to be that need to take place but Dwight we want to thank you for coming back in here oh, Patrick no, we want to thank you Thanks for being so here with us Patrick, again today and Marcus and I are going to come back in just a moment Again, Marcus, this was a good show. I, I was so pleased to have Dr. Mullen here. He's still here in the studio with us, and I, I actually want to give him the opportunity. We have a minute here. Just, Mark, you got a closing remark for us, uh, Dwight. <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> du Bois is my he's my intellectual hero, W.E.B. Du Bois, and he persisted through his entire life. Almost 100 years old he lived, and I, I agree with him. He said that problem of the 20th century and now the problem of the 21st century is the problem of the color line you're right well good way to close it and marcus and i again want to remind you that the waters and Harvey show is produced at blue ridge public radio in Asheville, north carolina and you can listen to our podcast on the bpr.org on the bpr mobile app and on itunes and google play and follow us and get in touch on facebook and twitter and again thank you for listening and dwight thank you for that closing remark thanks so much take care